do you have good relationships with buyers? That's a stupid question, and I don't understand why I get asked that question. Welcome to the Food Startups Podcast. You just need the packaging to shout off the shelf. It's a different world when you actually think about adding value. But to be able to play now is definitely going to require some new thinking out there. Hang out with us and learn how to grow your food business. All right. After more than 35 years in strategic sales, business strategy, design, branding, and marketing, his senior management and graphic arts resume is a salute to the country's most iconic brands like Shabani, Apple, Five Hour Energy, Pop Chips, Evolve Foods, Pure Foods, Crave Jerky, and Bob's Red Mill. Most recently, as the co-founder of Level One Brokerage, his relationships with buyers and marketers, strategists, and designers present enviable connections in the food industry. His passion, vision, and unique process has led to a record of success, second to none. As you can see, the brands that he's worked with kind of speak for themselves. He sold Level One and later got back into the game recently with Launchpad. And Launchpad is more than a brokerage. We're going to talk about it, and I'll let Germany kind of inform us on everything else they do besides just being a broker, another concept that is transforming. And uh, you can call it the official home to the entrepreneurs of emerging food brands, like many people listening to this show. The dreamers, the doers, the troublemakers, disruptors, and mavericks who spend every day accomplishing what others foolishly believe to be impossible. It is a full-service business strategy, branding, and representation group, and they're very focused on the clubs, uh, especially Costco, which is a, a unique topic for our listeners as we usually talk more about Whole Foods, Safeway, and Kroger. So we're going to go into Costco's strategy, for lack of a better term. He's been quoted in the New York Times, Specialty Food News, Macworld, and appeared on CNET TV, and he's won awards for copywriting, written food industry articles for Circle Up, who's also been on the show, and Packaging Magazine. And he was a featured speaker at Sabled, where he met Steve Jobs, who is an important influence in his business life. And some of his passions outside of the food biz are cycling, rescuing pit bulls, and his family. And on top of that, listeners that are attending the Food Brand Summit, he will be there in the buyer pitch, in the buyer broker and distributor pitch, watching you and potentially expressing interest. So amazing resume. Jeremy Smith, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you very much. Um, I'm just listening to you. I didn't realize how old I am now. So it's a, a lot of things have happened over the years. Yeah, I mean, it's quite the resume. And I, uh, I yeah, I was, I'm pretty impressed, man. You, you've done so many different things. So I guess my first question for you is, how did you get into food? And what um, was it necessity or interest that gave you the skill set that includes, you know, business strategy, design and copywriting? Well, you know, I um, one of my big influences in my life was my mother. And uh, growing up, after our parents got divorced, I had no idea what an entrepreneur was when I was 13 or 14 years old. But one day, my mom tells us we're moving to California. She's going into the concert business, and um, which that sounds like the coolest thing in the whole world. Your mom's going into the concert business. 
And, you know, she never, ever questioned whether she could be successful at it. She just went, like a lot of food entrepreneurs, she was a dreamer, and she wound up being very successful uh, booking bands like Peter Gabriel, Jackson Brown, Bob Marley uh, at the the um, Starlight Amphitheater in Burbank. And so I always watched my mom in the beginning, and, and I could always see there was nothing she couldn't accomplish. And so that was really my first teacher. And then... I was able to actually get into the advertising and graphic arts industry. And, you know, the thing I liked about it was that you're, you're never stuck working on uh, one single project. You might be on something for Acura. You might be on something for MGM the next day. And so it was, it always kept my uh, attention span because you wouldn't, if you were bored on one project, you knew another one would be coming. And so I probably spent, I think, 20 years in advertising and design, and that's really where my passion for branding came because I I worked with some of the best designer, packaging designers in the world, like Keith Bright out of L.A. He did all the Olympic stuff there. So I, I got to witness these giants of design and how they thought and how they created. And, and so that kind of – it was like going to a college almost, but – it was watching people at work today doing their thing and what they created and how they created and how they thought. And, and the interesting thing about it is that there, are, there really weren't any right or wrong answers to it because what one designer might do, like a Michael Schwab up in the Bay Area, he's not going to do what Keith Bright does. And so all these guys think differently. And so having that experience with them was – it just changed my life because it opened my world up to things that people said that were impossible. These guys were making these things happen before my eyes. And so that in combination and meeting Steve Jobs, which was an incredible experience. I, I had two. Well, let's talk about that. Yeah. Meeting Steve Jobs. So how did that come about? And, and I'm curious, you know, you list him as an important influence in your, in your business life. Uh, tell us about that. Uh, whole interaction and influence that lingered after. Yeah. So he, he, uh, you know, most people in life are taught to obey the rules. You know, there's that great commercial that, um, uh, Goodby Berlin did for the, I think it was the milk board where there's a little kid who the teacher keeps saying, draw within the lines. Oh, it's actually not the milk board. I'm sorry. It's for an automotive company. And so she's, she, she does everything outside the lines and, Steve Jobs was definitely kind of like an out-of-the-box guy. Like if most people turn left, he turned right. And so I was speaking at a, a Seabold event, and Seabold used to be a big computer uh, show in San Francisco. And I was brought in because I was helping Apple on a project to try and get their new technology that they were working on um, with Adobe, the PostScript technology, which revolutionized the whole printing industry. Because for years, you'd create a file, you'd print it out, um, you you you'd ha you couldn't communicate with a copier. You you know you couldn't this communicate is with. A, Sorry to interrupt you, but you're well, just, this is PDFs, correct? Or this is before PDF. This is okay, gotcha. PostScript was the actual printing language, and okay. it was probably the biggest Adobe created. It was probably the biggest uh, fundamental change in design, advertising, and printing because a closed system that used to exist was now open. And so Apple wanted to be part of that. So there was a Seabold show in San Francisco, 
and there were probably 50, 60,000 people that would attend. And Bill Gates would speak there and Steve Jobs would speak there. And there were all the in industry people from the computer side and the advertising side. So I was working on a project with Apple to help their technology get adopted. And um, I was speaking at uh, one of the events and I made the comment that um, anyone who's doing anything creative is not using a Windows-based machine. And somebody at Apple t heard that, told him about it, and I was invited to the unveiling of the uh, iMac. And uh, the, fir the very first one where they came out with those kind of rounded shape um, colored devices. And he, he spoke to me for probably about 10 minutes about how they designed it. And one of his favorite things was he, he came up with the idea to put a um, handle on the box so that when people come out of a store with a computer, they can actually carry it. Now that sounds like a silly thing today, but that was revolutionary back then. No, nobody thought about how hard it was for uh, a person to carry a box out of there. So anyway, so we started having a conversation. He brought up, hey, I heard, thanks for that speech. Um, and we really got into this discussion about determination and honesty and that most people can't handle the truth. And I, I just really loved the conversation because here's a guy who I admired, and he was explaining to me how the fact that, yes, some people feel he rubs people the wrong way, but that's because they can't handle the truth. And so I, I talked to him one more time after that, about two years later, and we were just talking about life in general and business. And, you know, he he was a I could tell because he had a level of intensity that you don't see in a lot of people. Um, I've probably only seen a couple other people that have that that kind of intensity. I'm intense, but not Steve Jobs intense. And so just the way he approached things when we, we had a discussion about design, there's very few CEOs of any company. They're going to talk to you about typography and how important typefaces are and how important design is. So that helps shape me. When I talk with clients today, I'll, I'll be honest enough to tell them, and, and they do most appreciate this, that their branding is awful or that their, the design is off, the story isn't there. And, and you th a lot of people are afraid to do that, but Jobs gave me the courage to do that because that's what he did. And so, um, you know, that really helps shape kind of my directness. And so I don't really have a fear. The client can either say you're fired, and if that's what they say, then they just save me the time of a long long engagement, and we're never going to be on the same page. But I haven't had that happen yet. So um, I, you know, I there's a lot of discussion with clients who don't know me and I'm recommended by someone, they'll say, oh, just Jeremy's going to be very honest with you and very direct. And uh, I appreciate that, but you need to be prepared for that. And I think we've been really successful over the years because directness cuts through all the BS. And, you know, you can really, once you get through the BS, there's nothing you can't accomplish. And so um, I think Steve Jobs really, I, I got what he was saying when, um, I don't know if you read his his book, but that whole thing about having A teams and B teams and C teams, I don't know. I 
a lot of people don't like it, but I really admired what he did along those lines. I think he really understood that you need, and I think it was misinterpreted because people thought like he was playing the teams against each other, but he was really saying is project, this project may need a certain type of people. And the A team is best as that is, is best at doing that. And that yet you have a different project and the C team will be good at that. So that, that was kind of the, the influence that, that he had on me. And, and I, you know, I cannot, it drives my wife crazy, but I cannot buy products that are not designed well, all because of the time I've spent in design and advertising and the time I, short time I, I interacted with Steve Jobs. So it's interesting, Jeremy, a couple of things there. Design is, is so important. And a lot of a lot of the amazing things about design, we don't even notice. We just take for granted. You mentioned just being able to carry the box. It also makes me think of luggage. Luggage is a very interesting example because for a long time, and I mean, maybe until like 15, 20 years ago, maximum, there was not uh, wheels on luggage, right? And But you would put the luggage on a cart that had wheels on it. So these very, what appear very simple and obvious today, simple and like, you know, innovations change life. Oh, definitely. Um, and it seems that you, and, and it seems Jeremy too, that you already had that inclination, that affinity to be straightforward and direct, but seeing someone that's in, incredibly, incredibly successful, like Steve Jobs kind of reinforced the importance of being um, earnest and, and straightforward and, and telling people maybe not what they want to hear, because, um, you know, no one wants to have to redo uh, their, all their packaging, but uh, what they need to hear. Yeah, and I think, you know, when you look at the food industry now, like when I just got back from uh, a few weeks ago from uh, Expo West, and one thing I just can't stand about the show is that there's so many people that come out with products there. All they're doing is copying somebody. There's nothing original. You see some of these players in the jerky category, and they all want to be the next Crave. But you, you can't be the next Crave. You can only be the next whoever you are. You've got to put your DNA together as a brand and tell your story. If, you, if your goal is to try and copy Crave, you fail because you'll never do what they – you're not a John Sebastiani. You're a whoever you are, and your products need to reflect that. Otherwise, I really believe – it's kind of, it, it's a, there's a falseness to it and consumers pick up on that right away. And I, I just think it's a, a silly thing to do. And it, it's the whole thing with Chobani where people call me and say, can you make me the next Chobani? And I said, well, why would you even want to be the next Chobani? That's, I, I get it from a sales standpoint, but that would be like if you, you came in and you said, I want to be, uh, uh, I want to change my green eyes to, to brown and I want my hair to be blue from now on that 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 wouldn't be you you're trying to be like someone else and so um i think people and and i think the, the best brands like a bob's red mill the reason they're so successful is because they're authentic and if you as a entrepreneur or a vp of sales if you don't have that then you're not going to go very far no matter how great your food may taste jeremy so i'm interested uh, with Shabani, let's go into that authenticity. One, what made Shabani special, and two, what did you, you know, how did you help them? Well, first, I'll tell you what, what, how we helped them, and that was Costco. And look, anyone from a brokerage standpoint or representation standpoint doesn't get that. In order to be successful, you have to have the right client. You can't, 
you can't drag a client into Costco and make them successful and uh, year after year without having a really, really strong client to back you up. And if you start with, you know, everyone knows Hamdi is probably one of the best CEOs in, in the industry who leads Giovanni, but Kyle O'Brien was, I've never met anyone exactly like Kyle. I mean, he, he'd wake up in the morning, like no matter what time it is, ready to roll. I mean, his... His focus and his determination is is why Chibani grew as fast as they did. And we could have never been able to meet all of the requirements that the Costco buyers had. We would have never been able to uh, be as successful as we were without an entire team of people at Chibani. But the key and the guy who doesn't get as much attention is Kyle O'Brien because he he went out and selected an all-star team of people to work with to take him out there, and we had a tremendous amount of support. And when I say support, I don't mean demo support. I mean anything that a buyer would need, Chobani was set up to respond to. And a lot of clients don't have that in their DNA. They're slow. They make decisions slowly. Chobani made decisions within 24 hours, and that is, especially at Costco, Costco buyers are, are managing an intense amount of business, and they make decisions very quickly, like a truck gets delayed. They, they don't want to wait to hear from you the following day. They want to hear in the next hour, and, and some clients can't deal with that because they don't have the systems in place. But Chobani was really geared up for that. They, they knew that there were certain needs at Costco that buyers had, and they were willing to make they were willing to adapt to that culture at Costco, at club to, to be successful. And they're one of the few brands, and they're not the only ones, but they're one of the few brands that understood Costco really well. Where I think we helped them was a lot on strategy and being able to say, no, we don't want to do this, or we should do this, or we shouldn't do that. And, and some, sometimes it's something really small. So we, had a, we had a project that a buyer came to us with, and they said, look, I'm willing to buy. It would have probably been about a 2 or $3 million order. And Chobani said, no, we don't think this is going to be successful. And they passed on it. And they, the buyer said, well, I'm going to go to your competitor. And they said, we're okay with that. It's, it's not going to be successful. And so somebody else produced the product. It didn't sell. It got marked down. That's a key thing. And another thing that made Giovanni successful was that they were confident in what they were doing because they were a very fact-based organization in belief. And what I mean by that is they weren't caught up in the Giovanni hype. And this happens with a lot of companies when they start growing, they fall in love with themselves and they were much more grounded. And, you know, a lot of that has to do with Hamdi and his personality is he's a much more grounded guy. And so that then trickles down to your entire organization. So when Costco wants to do something, it, you know, some companies are like, well, you know, we'll jump over the moon, whatever, whatever you need. But it also has to make sense. If it doesn't make sense for the company, you, you have to hold, hold your own and say no. Another factor is that Chobani knew their market. They really knew their market and they understood it. And so that when they came to the meetings, and this doesn't always happen, they came in and 
the buyers knew once they got to know them that Chobani really knew knew the marketplace and understood their brand. Doesn't mean they knew new things about other parts of the category, but they were seldom wrong about the decisions they made on moving forward on different pack sizes, on different products, and on different SKUs. And I remember at one point Costco said, nope, there'll never be anything more than one Shabani SKU here. And and that's the normal way Costco works. But some of the regions had wound up like three or four years later, carried three or four SKUs. And so, um, you know, testing different items, things like that. And it's just Shabani knew. And Shabani knew that eventually Costco would begin to see how big this market would get if they got into the Chobani brand. And so that 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 had a lot to do with it. And and you see that in the In Germany before you go into the Go ahead. Jeremy, sorry, before you go into the second part, I just want to summarize this because you're delivering a ton ton of good information here. So if if I have this correct, what makes Shabani different from uh you know, there's many other uh you know, yogurt and 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 Greek yogurt companies, but it seemed seems that like on the their organization, they had the right systems in place to make fast decisions, right? Yep. They also uh, analyzed fact-based, uh, rational and grounded, um, you know, so incredibly quick decision makers and based on rationale. And they also held their own and they didn't get swept up uh, in hype where a lot of people would do anything for Costco. Is that a, a fair summary? Definitely. Okay. Very cool. Interesting to hear that story. And so Kyle O'Brien, I guess, maybe didn't get the, the credit in terms of the consumer facing, but he was the type of guy that would be on the ball and, you know, a scenario, a truck's delayed, or we need a decision tomorrow on, uh, let's say, I don't know, a new type of SKU, a new flavor that we want to do on like discount across all Costco's and they would get back to them. Whereas other brands would be like, Hey, we need time to think about this. But Shabani could make those decisions with million or multi-million dollar decisions uh, at the blink of an eye. Yeah, th- that was that was a lot of it because they really knew their market well and they had the right decision makers in place to make the decision. They didn't put a lot of layers in. And that that's the one thing I I love about those type of brands and Launchpad and prior to that level 1, um we were really set up to strip out bureaucracy because layers of things, and I'm not talking about structural things that are important to quality and all that stuff. I'm just saying that the the more you can put the decision maker into the hands of a few, the in many situations, the faster decisions get made and, and the more responsive you are. And, and Costco, one of the reasons I think they've always done so well with emerging brands is because like emerging brands and entrepreneurs that want to move quickly, Costco does move quickly, and I always I always tell clients that when you go to a Costco meeting, you have if if a buyer has questions or comments, feedback of any kind, and they're interested in your item, you have two weeks to get back to them after that meeting. If you take any longer, they are on to another project, and you have lost momentum, and you have to start all over again and get back to them and. And it's it's something we really try and train the client. I hate using that word, but we really say to them, look, if I'm going to make a commitment to you in representing in representing you, I also need you to make a commitment to me that you're going to follow certain rules. Otherwise, it's a waste of time to go to Costco. Let call me back when you're ready. And I don't mean that arrogantly. It's just 
the more you do that, the more the the more you follow what Costco wants to do on, under certain. I'm not saying you do everything they want, but their basic rules. The more successful you'll be there, the better relationships you'll have with the buyers, and long term, you'll be the type of vendor that Costco picks up the phone and calls because they can count on you and they can trust you. Right, and I imagine with level one, you. It's your reputation on the line. You can't bring in mediocre brands or even great brands that just aren't ready for Costco. And I, I want to ask you a question that I've been well, curious can, can about. Can I add something to that? Um, sure, sure. Yeah, before you ask the question. So, you yeah. know, there's a misnomer that, you know, that like there's – I don't know that there is such a thing as mediocre brands. I think that sometimes you get a brand that's really successful at Whole Foods and at retailers like Whole Foods. And – um they just don't succeed at Costco because you can't translate every item that's at Whole Foods to say it'll be successful at Costco. And so any item that is really successful, whether it's a Crave, whether it's a Chobani, the reason they were so successful, or one of the big reasons is that they branched out and didn't become just a Whole Foods um, vendor or brand that the larger part of the Costco membership, which is the people that shop at Safeway, that shops at Kroger's, they also bought Chobani. They also bought Crave. And that, that's an important point because some of the other brands are really good, but they just never make the big numbers at Costco because they can't get out of their, their a more narrow segment. Gotcha. So if, if I understand this correctly, some brands, they do great in Whole Foods and the specialty uh, you know, gourmet, organic grocery, but they're unable, whether it's price points, brand image, whatever it is, to to hit some of the consumers that traditionally go to more of the Safeway, Kroger's, and we'll say non-Whole um, Foods type stores? Yeah, and I, I think some of it is, there's certain things that sell really well at Costco, and there's some things that don't sell as well. Like alternative chips sometimes don't do as well, and when I mean don't do as well, they might sell incredibly well in 15 buildings, but in a region, there may be 50 or 90 buildings in a region. And so they don't do well enough to really go out. Vegans, another category like that at Costco. And so it's, it's a lot of times it's not the brand's fault per se. It's just that the, the demographics don't match up well enough to get the brand over the thousand dollars a week per hump. Uh, per building uh, sales numbers that you really need in a lot of the categories. And that, that, that's really what it is. Gotcha. So th that's a really great point. So great brands do well in Whole Foods, other stores, but Costco is different. And so I, I would think a, a big takeaway is brands need to understand the difference of, of, of Costco buyers. They might move a little bit, like a lot faster, I would think, than, than Kroger and, and Safeway. So being, being aware of that and also what types of categories do well at Costco that might do awesome at Whole Foods, but might be a little bit slow um, in Costco. Jeremy, very cool. Is there anything else you want to add in terms of the difference in selling to Costco versus, say, Whole Foods? Um, well, I actually think that what people have to, when you're looking at both, because one of the first things we get a call about is, well, I'm scared that I'll lose my Whole Foods business if I go to Costco. And knock on wood, I've never had that happen where a client who was at Whole Foods went to Costco and then because they went to Costco, they they lost their business. Now watch, it'll happen to me because I said it's never happened. But um, I, I think, you know, the, the best thing to do for any any vendor or brand is 
go into a Costco and spend two, three hours in there and watch how people shop and then go into a Whole Foods and watch how people shop. It's a very different experience when you watch how the consumers make their decisions and the type of products that are at Whole Foods, there are some differences in that customer that you that everyone needs to understand that don't always translate over well to, to Costco. Now, that's probably in about 5 to 10% of the time. 90% of the time, most of the companies that transition over to, uh, that do well at Whole Foods transition well to Costco. But sometimes there can be regional differences where, like, you know, on the East Coast of Costco, big brands uh, in many ways, like, you know, some people call it the Rice Aroni region, the Costco Northeast. They said that about BJ's too, because a lot of the big old brands that are there still do really well. And some of the West Coast brands, if you will, don't always sell as well in the Northeast. And so that's changing a lot more now, but there are still some brands that, you know, are blowing out at Costco on the West Coast and Whole Foods, but don't do as well when they, when they go back east because of the different demographics. And you just you just always have to be conscious of the difference in the demographics, the buying power. And lastly, you have to be uh, understand that a six-ounce bag of seaweed may be absolutely delicious, but when you go to Costco in a 22-ounce bag, it, it could be too much product in a bag for that specific product. And so you have to look at, you know, what your, what your turns are out in retail and then work on that and make sure that when you go into a larger bag that you're going to get high turns at Costco as well because the unit movement at Costco, the, this, they look at it in, in dollars per week per building, is much higher than it would be at Whole Foods. Great answer, great answer. Yeah, and I love the the anthropology assignment, right? Spend a couple hours in these stores, watch how, and, and this has nothing to do with the buyers per se, well, except that the buyers, they have to make sure their stuff sells. So observing the consumers at the consumer level, spend two to three hours in the store and watch that. I think that's a great takeaway. German, there's so much stuff we can talk about. I want to address a couple more things here that I found really interesting. So first off, you sold level one brokerage. What made you decide to get back into, I'll put it in quotes here, the game? Well, I love what I was doing. And it it all got sucked out when we sold the company. And I didn't, I, I did not. Do you regret selling the company? Um, do I regret selling the company? That's a good question. I, I would have to say no, because what I'm doing in Launchpad is is like level one on steroids, and I would have never done what I'm doing right now uh, at level one. So, and when we looked at the reasons why we sold the company, I I really believe that had had the there not been cultural issues between the company that acquired us and and our culture, I think that um, it would have been tremendously successful, and I might have been there for a long time. But um, you can never. I, I have always said that the hardest thing to predict on an acquisition or merger is how cultures are going to integrate. And there was an executive who's no longer there who was involved with our deal. And he said, you know, Jeremy, you're right. He says, we, we should have listened to you. We totally underestimated how different your culture was compared to the traditional broker that we acquire. 
it's just it's not a good fit. And so I think they learned something from it, and we learned a lot. And so um, I have no regrets on along that. And um, it's just sad because even though you know they paid us and we did sell the company, and that that's obviously fantastic, and they they were really good people. The company that acquired us was Advantage, so and I think most people know that. So I'm not hiding anything. And they're really good people, and they really meant well. But they're, they, they really were so different than our culture that I think that um, it, was, it was just never a good fit from day one. And as, as time passed, we could tell everybody knew on my team that this just wasn't going to work. And it just, it just took the people at Advantage longer to figure out that it wasn't going to work. But then, you know, I, once we all kind of said, hey, this isn't working, then I realized that um, I was going to be able to do what I really wanted to do, which was to start Launchpad and do something wildly different than what we had done at, at uh, level one. Gotcha. So if I can infer here, it seems like Advantage Sales and Marketing, a larger company and maybe not as entrepreneurial, uh, more corporate, and maybe some of the things that made level one great before were kind of removed. Or uh, you mentioned getting rid of with food brands, getting rid of barriers to have faster decision-making, not setting up the chain. It looks like they almost like added barriers into level one. Well, yeah, you know, we went from having no bureaucracy. My brother and I, who I co-founded the company with, and he used to work for Costco. And, and so he, we, we would go, we'd sit down and say, well, what does the client want? What does the client need? We'd, we'd make a decision, you know, instantly. Now, when we were at Advantage, all of a sudden those decisions were sometimes two or three weeks. And in, in the, by the time they got back to us, we had moved on and we just said, forget about it. And, and, you know, sometimes you lose out on an opportunity. But, you know, that's not to say that big companies can't be entrepreneurial because I am working with Anderson Damon, the largest Costco broker in the world, and they're very entrepreneurial. And they respond within 24 hours on almost everything I need. And so I don't, I don't like to knock big companies because some big companies do things really well. I think it was more just the culture of uh, advantage was just not set up to match what level one was. And, and so, um, and sometimes that happens, you know, sometimes that happens. And, and so, um, you know, you just move on. Right. Totally. Um, you know, it wasn't the right fit and, and, uh, yeah, everyone goes their separate ways, but, but Jeremy, I'm yeah. one other thing though, in, sure. in one other last thing on that in their defense, uh, advantages defense, you know, it is, I think found if, if when I go back and I look at the thing, I now think founders probably shouldn't stay on after an acquisition. And uh, because I think me being there as one of the founders and the drivers of the culture, I think that hindered some things because if I had left day one, they would have taken over the whole culture and be forced to manage it more, I think. And so, um, if I had, if I ever, you know, get in a situation where I sell a company again, I, I don't think I'd stay on just because I think it's, it's a better fit to let the acquiring company 
put their culture in and 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 run the thing than it is to have a founder. That's one lesson I I took away from this, which I I didn't think I was going to learn about when I, we sold the company. Very interesting. And Jeremy, so you've kind of alluded to this, and you and I have actually talked before the podcast about this, and last week as well. It you seem to think that brokerage companies could be doing a better job, and that some food brands are working with brokers that are not a right fit for them. Um, can you elaborate a little bit more on that? Yeah. And, and so, you know, when you look at the brokerage market versus the changes that have occurred in the emerging brand, food brand world, um, it's like night and day. And a lot of the, there hasn't been a lot of evolution in the brokerage market. There's a lot of firms that are doing the same thing they've been doing over and over and over again for the past 20 years, just like the CPG brands have been. And I think there's a good correlation there. And so um, the the challenge for any sort of um, any food brand that wants to get representation is finding someone that has the passion for their business, um, just like they do. And while, you know, a broker could never, ever be as passionate as the entrepreneur because the entrepreneur lives and breathes 24 hours a day. Just because your buddy tells you, yeah, this broker is good, doesn't mean it's going to be the right fit for you. And I think, you know, one of the, the silliest questions that I feel I get when um, food brands call and ask me this question about Costco, do you have good relationships with buyers? That's a stupid question. And I don't understand why I get asked that question. In fact, I usually tell the person, why would you ask me that question? And they say, well, I want to know if you work well with the buyers. And I said, well, what do you think anyone's going to really tell you with that question? Right. You think they're really going to say to you, yeah, Sandy loves us. She thinks we're great. But Dave, we have an awful relationship with him. We haven't sold anything. So I, so I said, what I think you ought to be asking me is, what have I sold? What's out in the buildings? Because well, to me, at the end of the day, no matter how much I may love my client, my client may love and respect me, if I don't perform, if we don't deliver on getting them SKU space, I failed. And, I, and I'll be the first one to say, hey, I'm sorry, I didn't do what I said I would do. You need to go find somebody else. You don't have to wait to tell me. I'll tell you right now. I'm not doing a good job. I can't do a better job. And so I always tell clients, walk into a Costco building. When you're interviewing brokers, that'll tell you whether or not they're successful. That'll cut right to the bone. Because if they don't have SKUs in your region where you dominate, they're not the right broker for you. And so I think that's part of it. The, the other thing is the selling process. With brokers, they get often too focused on item selling. And I can't stand item selling because item selling plays. Elaborate on item selling for the listeners, please. Yes. So item selling is when people go in to buyer meetings and they're just focused on the item they're walking in the door with. And so if you walk in with, let's say, a potato chip and you just sit there talking about how great your flavors are and you're focused on your items, too much without telling the story, who is this brand, who you are, then what happens at Costco is the buyer just assumes, in, because you haven't given them the information, that you do everything 
the same way you do it uh, that the competitors do, and then it becomes about price. If you want to bring value to Costco, you have to be not just about your item. You have to be about your brand, and a lot of brokers don't do that. They go in with these giant 34-page PowerPoint presentations, which probably one of the worst pieces of software Microsoft ever created because it sounds so boring already. 34 pages or 34 slides. Well, I've had clients come in and I, and I say to them, why don't you go time yourself and see how long that takes for you to present? Because what happens is when you get into these longer presentations, it becomes, it's like, you might as well just have brought out green eggs and ham. That'd be a much more interesting book to read (laughs) to the buyer than to sit there and listen to you talk about your, your uh, plant and what type of sugar you use for 35 minutes. And so you want to have an interactive meeting with the buyer. And most brokers don't do this because they don't know their brand well and they don't know their client well. And you've got to, before you even, because everybody's in a rush to go to Costco, I slow the process down in the beginning because I want to make sure that when we go in, that we're telling the buyer about the brand and our story and who we are and what we are first. And most brokers don't do that. They'll, they'll just read off of the PowerPoint. It would be like going to see a play and Denzel comes out and just reads from the script. You'd be pretty disappointed. And so that's just the nature of the business because old habits are hard to break. And some of the more, I would say some of the better brokers like level one and resource marketing, which was another good firm, they got acquired. So they're not what they once were. And so you've, you know, Food brands really have to spend the time finding the right people to work with and not be so much in a rush to get your SKU space, but to make sure that you have people that respect your brand and have passion for your brand, just like you do, and know how to uh, conduct a meeting, which we always say to a client that's going to a Costco meeting for the first time, it's not a presentation, you're not selling anybody anything, it's a conversation about what you do. Love that. And I'm going to sum this up here because so much value. So you kind of talked about the question to ask brokers. One of them is, you know, what have you sold, right? Because anyone can, you know, actions speak louder than words, of course. Then learning how to conduct a meeting and a presentation and not item sell. Sell your brand, your culture, right? For a long-term relationship that could be many, many SKUs in, in a, a long-term relationship. Exactly. Love it. Uh, Jeremy, this is, this is really good stuff. You also mentioned to me... Well, actually, I have one question for you, Jeremy. Like, uh, with uh, with level one, and do, do brokers almost all brokers do they take a base plus commission, a commission of sales, or how does that work in terms of uh, the pricing for food brands? Um, you know, it, it depends. R- retail uh, brokers are more retainer based, and uh, uh, club brokers are less retainer based, but more and more are going to retainers plus commission. So. Uh, some you may be getting, let's say it's $5,000 a month. I'm just making up a number. And then the commission is 5%, which I'm not making up. That's, that's generally somewhere between three and 5%, depending upon, uh, the type of business you have, whether you're, if somebody comes into a category and you've got no distribution, you're going to have to pay more because items generally at Costco that have no distribution or light distribution don't sell as well as un, until they have a lot of distribution. Now there's always uh, every once in a while a company steps out from that, and no matter you know with light distribution they they take off anyway. But generally that that's the rule. So you have to look at your broker or representation firm 
as part of your team. And so if you really ran your numbers and if you have the experience and you look at how much a sales team costs, whether you're paying 3% or 5% plus a retainer, there's no way you can run a sales team at at those numbers. So your your cost of sales would be much higher than 3 to 5%. So overall with the right firm, it's it's a good deal. Now, within that realm, if you have a firm that's just a broker, they're really not into strategy, they're not bringing as much value to the table, then there's reason for you to say, well, I'm not going to pay you 5%. I'm going to pay you 3% instead because you're really point and click guys and I can manage that and I'm okay with that because I have some food brands have enough people internally, they can support the broker and then the broker doesn't need to do as much and then they're more order takers. I don't like that kind of relationship, but that's the type of, if you do have that type of relationship and that works for you, then you could conceivably negotiate um, a a lower commission rate. Great answer. And Wow. Okay. So I think we did a really good job here. Um, thanks, Jeremy, for just getting a, a glimpse into how to work with brokers, understand the type of broker, questions to ask, how to work with Costco. We touched on the fact that, uh, yeah, uh, the brokerage, maybe because of this whole like mergers and acquisitions or, and uh, consolidation, the brokerage industry, uh, perhaps buyers are concerned about this as well. I'm quoting you from an email you sent me. Oh, they are. And, and, uh, yeah, I mean, tell me a little bit more about that. I mean, have buyers said, hey, Jeremy, I'm concerned that there's not many good brokers or uh, where do you get that, uh, we'll say, quote from? Well, initially when we announced we were our company had been sold, some of the buyers had indicated to our team and to some of our, our clients as well that they were concerned about it. And when you are like an Anderson Damon or a Level 1 or a Launchpad, and you're on the level that the buyers trust you, they like working with you, you're a major asset. And they know from their own experience that generally, not every time, generally when the broker gets acquired, that there's going to be changes. And if they have experience working with the company that's doing the acquiring, which in this case, some of the buyers did, who remain nameless, they were, they were upset because they knew the relationships at level one, no matter what we told them, they said, we'll see over time. And I had a direct conversation with a very senior buyer there. And he said to me, Jeremy, I've liked you. You're always a straight shooter with me. I'm going to be a straight shooter with you. He told me, he says, the guys that acquired you, which was advantage, are going to mess this whole thing up. And now I said, you know, I don't have the experience that you had working with them. So um, I'm going into this with a lot of optimism. So, um, but the buyer turned out to be right. Now, on the other hand, I got an, so level one's gone, but now there's Launchpad and there's other people that were at level one that went out and started their own companies. And so in, you know, in one sense, there's a rebirth, but on the other hand, it's hard to find a really good, honest broker. And when the firms that are out there that are doing a really good job with Costco, and then they're gone because of acquisition, it is unsettling because like when the Bay Area um, went into the whole organic set and decided they were going to build that, we were one of the brokers that worked with Costco because most of our brands were big organic brands or or mid-size like the Go Raw, um, Bob's Red Mill, and they wanted to make sure that we were giving them everything they could to help 
get them moving as fast as possible to compete with um, Whole Foods and other organic retailers. And so once it would have been interesting, I don't know if it would have gone as smoothly after level one was acquired. Fortunately, that all happened prior to level one being acquired when uh, Costco decided to get into organic. So we were able to move really quickly and get a lot of the brands in there and get opportunities. But it's sad to us to, to me that our level one office is now closed and, you know, is shuttered, but that's, you know, that's business life. And yeah, totally. And, and uh, yeah, everyone has an emotional connection to, to their startup. So it's not just about the money. Um, yeah. I've and, talked and, to other guys. Yeah. Totally. Totally. And, and Jeremy, I, I want to finish up here really quickly. And if you can just name them and then maybe you'll come on again, because I think we have a lot more stuff to talk about here. Sure. You mentioned urban remedy, Oh yeah. but what are a couple, uh, a couple like for, cause I think it's always nice to be able to go to their website and go see them and try their products. Name a couple brands. I mean, we named like five hour energy and Shabani, but they're really, really well known. What are some brands that a lot of listeners may not have heard of that are worth checking out to study that you see as being, uh, we'll say the next big thing. Well, I like um, Urban Remedy a lot because um, they're trying to do something that's a bit different in that everything they do is fresh. You know, they do everything from uh, juices to wraps. Um, But like I was over there uh, three weeks ago and they gave me something called a VLT, which it's, you know, a vegan version of a BLT. Now, I had no idea. I thought I was eating bacon, but it tasted it, it tasted because it tasted just like bacon inside of it. But they have a technique where they can make, of all things, eggplant tastes like bacon. And um, I played a trick on uh, my family. I brought it home and said, oh, you got to try this new bacon product. And everyone thought it was bacon. And I said, you're eating eggplant. And I think what they're doing is really cool because they're they're an example of why Whole Foods is really important because they work they have, they have their own stores but they all but they primarily work with um, Whole Foods in the Bay Area and so they're doing something that is very different in that they're trying to make fresh healthy and great tasting on a level that's not currently being done. So like with the VLT, it's wrapped in a, like a, instead of a traditional burrito, you know, either a corn or a flour wrap, it's done with a coconut and it's really, really good. And so you should talk to these guys sometime because when you, it's one of those places where you walk in, you know, there's something going on because the, the energy level is there. And I mean, they're, they're working on stuff all the way to like, uh, trying to cure, uh, fix the whole food waste problem. It's, and, and it's hard not to get excited about those type of things because it could, it could impact our future. Not, not just great food, but to be able to take so much food is wasted and to be able to make it into other products or other food. Um, so that's a brand that really excites me because they're, they not only have, um, great products, but, um, you know, they're working on, on trying to make the environment better. There's another company, um, uh, what's their names? God, I can't remember the names. They, they have a frozen mango lassi. It's Monsoor Singh, very small company. I think they're out of Brooklyn and I met them at the fancy food show and they've got a, out of all the lassies, which is, it's an Indian type, 
frozen uh, lossy. Uh, they're they're very interesting because I think the the product is uh, first of all it's absolutely delicious. It's one of the best ones I've ever tasted. They're very small, so you never know it. They're, they're a too small a stage, unlike Urban Remedy, which is already well over 10 million, approaching 20 million in sales. These guys um, are really, lastly, really just starting out. But they're they're like the type of customer that you get excited about, but you don't know if they're going to make it. Another one I saw at the show is this Cave Shake, which is has like a keto, paleo, vegan, ready-to-eat coconut milkshake. Really, really good tasting. Hard to tell. Um, they're too small now, and, and so who knows whether they'll be I – mean, I probably don't want to hear this, but I don't know if they'll be around in uh, you know five years from now, but right now what they're doing is, is pretty cool. So those are some of the companies that I've seen it shows over the last few weeks and spent some time with that, that I think are um, uh, very interesting. Amazing. Uh, and listeners, Monsher Singh, just in case you didn't get the spelling, it's M-O-N-S-I-E-U-R, Singh, S-I-N-G-H. Check out their website. and then, Oh, um, I forgot one other. Sure. This one, um, you have to check them out because um, I think what they're doing is really cool. It's called Perfect Day Foods. I don't know if you've spoken to them. I haven't. Uh, we're going to have to link up to some of these people and bring them on the show. Uh, Perfect Day Foods. Okay. Yeah, talk to them. They're based in Berkeley. Um, incredible guys working on an animal-free milk. But I, the products I've tasted um, were fabulous, and that's all I can say about them. But I think they're very interesting uh, local boys out of uh, the Bay Area. And you, another place you walk into, and you don't even know it's a food company. You think it's a lab. Wow. Um, listen, Jeremy, uh I really appreciate you coming on the show today. So much value. As I mentioned, we're going to have to, I have more questions that we're going to have to talk about in the future. And uh, so excited to Great. have you at the, uh, the Food Brand Summit. I know a lot of people participating will, um, in any event, will like to get your feedback or, or whatever. Whatever comes out of it is, is fantastic. It's our first one, and we're super excited. If listeners want to get in touch with you, what's a good way for them to reach you? Uh, either through my, my website, or my email address, um, e- either one uh, works. Should I uh, give you my email address? Yeah, give it here. And just listeners, also, this episode will be found at foodstartupspodcast.com slash launchpad, where we'll have all these links here. But if you just if someone wants it right now, sure. What is uh, your email address? Uh, email address is jeremy at launchpadgroupusa.com. Okay. All right, man. Jeremy. Thanks so much for coming on the show, and we'll talk to you shortly at the Food Brand Summit. Look forward to it. Take care. It's been a pleasure. Hey, guys. Thanks so much for listening, and As always, if you have any questions or comments, find us online at foodstartupspodcast.com.